Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with F.M. Dimiad about her debut novel, The Sky Worshippers. As any longtime listener of New Books in Historical Fiction knows, I write novels about Russia and the steppe in the middle of the 16th century. Many of my Tatar characters are nomads, and their leaders rule by virtue of their descent from Chinggis Khan. So it's no wonder that I jumped at the chance of interviewing an author whose fascination with the Mongol conquests exceeds even my own. The Sky Worshippers, for reasons that will become clear during the interview, begins about 170 years after Chinggis's death. Prologue, Karakoram, 1398 CE. Buried? How long? Lady Gaharshad peered closely at the manuscript as she stood beneath a torch among the ruins of Karakoram her silk gown the same soft amethyst as the evening sky above. More than a century, King Shachor traced the lines with his finger. Leather, worn with age, covered numerous sheaves of papyrus. Tiny specks of dust illuminated by light rose from time-worn pages. And we discovered it. Lady Gaharshad watched as her husband, Shachor Mirza, the ruler of Persia and Transoxiana, examined the voluminous cord-bound manuscript. She could hear sounds of tapping and knocking as laborers placed tiles on newly repaired walls and floors, and guilders worked their fine brushes over candelabra. We did not discover it. The workmen did during the renovations I ordered. It was buried in a hidden compartment under a layer of tiles that covered the floor of the atrium. The queen's curiosity piqued, but she would not touch the book, cased in dust. Her husband ventured his hand and randomly opened a page. It is in some foreign language. Let us get away from all this noise. She followed her husband past the stupas that bordered the vast enclosure. Before her stood palatial buildings of an era gone by. Candles squatted in every niche, and torches flickered between the ramparts. Do you believe history repeats itself, she asked, looking around at the ancient structures. And now, please join me in welcoming F.M. Dimiad. Hi, FM. I'm looking forward to talking with you today. Hi, thank you for uh, this uh, opportunity to present uh, my work, uh, The Sky Worshippers, uh, which uh, was recently published. How did you become interested in the Mongols and the history of their conquests? Uh, feel free, free to tell us a bit about your background as it relates to this question. I began my research in 2013 uh, as I was pursuing a master's degree in writing from Johns Hopkins University. Uh, that was a time when the Me Too movement was gaining momentum. I wanted to show the historical role of women, and I chose the Mongol era because this was probably the darkest period for women uh, globally. And what made you decide uh, to express that interest uh, in the form of a novel? Uh, when one studies the Mongol era, one thing that stands out is the lack of voices of women uh, even Chaka was married to Genghis Khan to an arranged political marriage, uh, remains an un- obscure figure, and definitely she had had some uh, influence on the on the Mongols once she was taken to the Mongol court. 
um, but only a few lines about her is available online. Um, having decided to write a novel, how did you go about it? Had you written fiction before? Uh, yeah, I uh, had written short stories and partial works of fiction before, but I had never seriously attempted to publish them. Uh, my father was born and raised in India, and he came to Iran when he was 29 years old and married my mother. Uh, many a times as a child, I would uh, use words both in the English and Persian language and mix them uh, to speak. And as a preschooler, uh, he introduced me to literature. I would memorize uh, segments and lines that I hardly understood and repeat them to relatives who didn't know the language, but they were just excited that I could speak in a different tongue. So uh, that gave me the love of literature. Uh, but the techniques I learned at Johns Hopkins University uh, on, you know, while I was pursuing my degree. Your novels, as listeners will know from my introduction, begins with the discovery of a manuscript in Karakoram, uh, the center of the Mongol Empire. The manuscript is at least a century old at the time of its discovery, and as we soon learn, was written by your three heroines. So how does this structure contribute to the story that you wanted to tell? Uh, I wanted a large span of the Mongol history in one novel. I had learned that a secret history of the Mongols existed, but it was too pro-Mongol uh, to be acceptable. Um, my professors at Johns Hopkins suggested that I uh, use a few women, as some novelists have done, uh, use a few women and uh, connect them uh, through a manuscript that they share. So the idea of the secret manuscript and the idea of princesses sort of merged into one idea for the novel. Uh, and when you first ask about the novel, the good thing about the novel is it, it takes you, like the writings of Tolstoy, it takes you to the streets of Russia. It shows you how it felt like. A new book of nonfiction can do that because you, uh, you know, there's a different dimension uh, to the writing. Um, then um, this manuscript became the medium that kind of uh, connected these three women together. So the first of your three princesses is Chaka, whom you just mentioned. Uh, she's a member of the Tangut royal dynasty. We meet her in 1209. Uh, tell us who the Tangut's were and why you picked her as your first spokeswoman. Uh, the Tangut Empire uh, located, was located in China's northern frontier, and it was uh, led by Emperor Shenzong. Uh, it was constantly threatened by the two other dynasties, the Jin and the Song dynasties. And so once Chaka was taken as prisoner, the opportunity also rose for them to become allies of the Mongols. And uh, that way they could fend off their other foes. So how does uh, Chaka react to her abduction and presentation to Genghis Khan? Uh, what do her reactions tell us about her as a personality? Creator, creating characters that are uh, real is probably the most difficult, as very well you, you know as a novelist, is the most difficult challenge uh, for a writer. Um, the what I do, I consider natural human reactions uh, to to the circumstances they're in. I had to, you know, I did a lot of reading. I re did a lot of thinking do, during the five years that I was doing this research, and there were moments that I thought, 
you know, I, I even wrote an article about how I felt like I swam to the middle of the ocean. There's no going back and no going forward because I had invested so much in this. There were so many discrepancies in the uh, material that was available, uh, even not just among the historians of the past, but present day historians. And by the way, I, I had access to Persian literature, which most of the historians of the time, the eyewitnesses were Persian, although they, they were really fearful of their masters who were, they, were, they had assigned them to write the Mongol history. But at least the information was there and available to me more so than other uh, nonfiction writers who were uh, following. I mean, they, they also attempted to understand the writings of the Persians that were translated. It was just easier for me to go through the material. That is that is a, a very valuable asset um, to be able to read things in the original. And that's one of the problems with studying the Mongols is that there are so many languages involved because there are very few Mongol sources themselves. So it's always other people's view of them in many different languages. I mean, look at, looking at the world through Chaka's point of view, she's a young woman married to a much older man who's his, her own captor. Uh, she uh, is constantly living in fear because any wrongdoing can cost her her life, uh, even inadvertently if she does something. So uh, at one point, she attempts suicide uh, even. Uh, but considering her background as a Buddhist, uh, she would not see suicide as an end to her life. And therefore, there's a sentence where she's thinking about coming back to the world as a doe or a dove. So that point of view of that specific character and her background had to be taken into consideration. And she's cut off from her family, essentially. I mean, it, it, there's an active attempt to keep her away from her family. So why does she begin to write the manuscript that forms the backbone of your novel? Uh, few women in the 13th century were well-educated, but those who lived uh, like they were children of the uh, kings and emperors of the time were educated because in case the male heir to the throne would die, uh, there was always the possibility that the female would have to rule. And so they, uh, considering that she had the knowledge of writing uh, and had the papers and pencils available or, you know, tools of writing available to her, uh, she would very possibly attempt to uh, chronicle, uh, you know, there would be this inclination to uh, write about as this tumultuous era that's unfolding before her eyes so that she could communicate her concerns to future generations. So that was the premise of the novel, is that these women find that writing as a refuge for, for the pains and troubles they're going through. And in brief, what did she think of Genghis Khan as a man and as a leader? Uh, when a young woman is married to such a powerful emperor, uh, this is the, probably the greatest conqueror that ever lived as far as the, uh, you know, the portion of the earth that they ended up eventually ruling. Uh, she would obviously feel a sense of awe and admiration. Um, but at the same time, there's that uh, dread and fear. So um, she would, uh, you know, she, you know, she would be ambitious my understanding of a personality like Chaka. And uh, she would struggle to become, she, at one point in the novel, she struggles to become the advisor to Genghis Khan with the hope 
of influencing his policies and strategy in case he attempts to uh, conquer Tangled Nation again. And at times she loves him and at times she fears him? Uh, she lives in awe of him. She has no choice, but she has, at the same time, there's that dread and fear continuously with her, and which leads her at one point to attempt suicide. So before we even meet your second princess, we encounter a man named Jamshid, and do correct my pronunciation if I get these wrong, uh, who's known as the Jackal. By now it's 2020. So who is the Jackal and what role does he play in the story? Uh, actually, historical accounts indicate that Genghis Khan actually tried to uh, pursue nomadic tribes and desert dwellers to help them uh, figure out a path through the uh, it's a, it's a really treacherous, treacherous uh a desert, and no one before had attempted, no army had attempted to cross that desert before. So uh, they were looking for individuals like that and ultimately ended up using them. In the case of the jackal, there is a tendency in him to, uh, he's calculative, so he figures out that maybe uh, at one point they will do unto him as they did to the governor of uh, Utrar. Uh, they killed him in a most horrible way that I did not even indicate in the novel. Um, it was so horrific. So he decides to run away and he becomes a vigilante type personality. He becomes a vigilante later, but how does he end up in the desert where they find him in the beginning? Uh, they were like kind of looking for individuals like that. So they find him and, um, you know, they know, you know, they, they had really good reconnaissance missions going on, uh, both in the Middle East and in Europe or continuously uh, figuring out what was really going on uh, within the different communities in every country. So uh, really a lot of planning and waiting wait, went into every attack. Uh, they would probably know him, uh, his personality, his background, his uh, troubles with the law, and um, a shady personality actually would work well for the Mongols. Um, so uh, they, uh, at one point, while he's encountering a jackal, I mean, a, a hyena or some other animal, he's trying to kill it, uh, they're impressed by his bravery, and uh, they approach him. So Rehan, the second princess, comes from a very different part of the world, Samarkand, uh, to be precise. Uh, who is she, and how, should, how does she become the captive of Mongol forces? Uh, the initial attack uh, occurred against Bukhara. And uh, uh, communication was rather slow. It, it was not like the 21st century when things happened really, really fast. So uh, still in Samarkand, people were not quite aware of the extent of the damage done to Bukhara. And she's kidnapped. We know personalities, uh, high-ranking ind individuals who were kidnapped uh, to create fear uh, among the population. It was some kind of a psychological method to create fear. And, um, but the thing is in, in Persia, uh, in the ancient Persia, as well as today's Iran, uh, a princess is always a princess. So they would call her Shazda Khanum, even if she belongs to a former ruling class. So it was very likely for the Mongol to mistake Rehan, who's the granddaughter of the last Saljuk king, and also a foe to the Khwarezm Shah as being the daughter of Khwarezmshah. So that mistake is made by the Mongols and she's carried off to Mongolia. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. She attracts the attention of Agadai, uh, who is Genghis Khan's third son. Um, tell us a bit about him as you see him. What kind of man is he? How does he get along with his family? Uh, Genghis, as you learn in the novel, uh, suffered greatly uh, during childhood. Uh, he was left without with his siblings uh, in the wilderness. Uh, this is the most difficult part of the world to live in. Winds from the Arctic blow and sometimes temperature reaches way below uh, zero. Uh, and it, he, he had to resort to uh, eating the flesh of rodents at times and wearing their skin. Uh, so this, this man is, has granted fantastic empire and all the wealth of all these different nations to his uh, third son and heir, Owede. Uh, but Owede has never experienced those hardships and doesn't understand he's, he's uh, lavishly spending the fortune of the Mongols to the point that almost drives them toward bankruptcy. He drinks a lot and uh, enjoys the compliments he's receiving from high-ranking officials uh, abroad. Uh, so at one point, uh, he has to resort to wars again to uh, replenish his wealth. And what draws him to Rehan and her to him? Um, because it is it becomes a love match. It's obviously not a love match in the beginning. Um, what can you tell us about their relationship? Uh, you have to look at the 13th century, not from the point of view of the 21st century woman. So love would have a different meaning and relationship would have a different meaning. Women were not really given that much of a choice in their collections. Rehan is betrothed to, to a man in Baghdad that he, she has never seen. And uh, her first contact with the opposite sex is the moment that Ovede, uh abducts her. So they're, again, looking from the point of view of you know the character and seeing the natural reaction of the character at the circumstance, you can say that an attraction can Develop between a beautiful girl, a Mongol man, and the first time she's exposed to, you know, the opposite sex. So uh, it's possible that initially she falls in love, but then after the marriage, she learns that uh, the devastation that her country has underwent, and from then on, their relationship is not the same. Eventually, she discovers Chaka's manuscript and she decides to add to it. So why does she make this decision? And her what can you tell us about her contributions, which are quite different in kind and in tone from Chaka's? The devastation Persia underwent, uh, uh, you know, as a person growing up in Iran, you hear these names all the time, you know, uh, the Oktad Khan or Ogede or Hulugo or Hulagu Khan. These are not unfamiliar to the Persians. Uh, they, he, uh, uh, established the Ilkhanid dynasty in Iran. So we still have structures belonging to that era in the country. And uh, uh, the devastation Persia underwent was far greater than what China witnessed during the Mongol era. It just brought that great civilization to its knees, and it was the end of the empire of 
far as uh, Rehan is angry about all of this. She's frustrated. She's in. She's living in captivity, and writing is uh, is an is an outlet for her. Last, we come to Poland and uh, Princess Krystyna who is later known as Dunya, uh, is 1240, and the Mongol expansion, although not complete worldwide, is nearing its limits in Europe. How would you describe Krishina as a character, and how does she end up in Mongol hands? I learned in the uh, five years or more than five years that I was researching the Mongols that two princesses were actually taken from Europe. And my, I, I looked at the siblings of the royalty there, and nobody was missing. But then I learned that Henry II's brother had died. It was quite possible that he would take his brother's children under his wings, and they would also be called princesses because they were members of royalty and they would be living in the palace. So that's how the uh, personalities of Christina and Sophia uh, were uh, developed. And but but the problem was we didn't know anything about them. We just knew that. Both of those women who were taken from Europe were called Mary and that Europe uh, disowned them as illegitimate, both of them, uh, the moment they were taken. So uh, my understanding was that they felt bad about the idea of uh, two European women being uh, captives of the Mongols and they just didn't want to think about it anymore. Uh, So uh, I had to really resort to tools of fiction in order to uh, present the personalities and uh, build it as close as I can to reality. Well, I don't know if this applies to Poland, but there is with Russia, you have a similar problem. The uh, sources about the Mongol invasion barely mention it. And I know at least one scholar has theorized that that was because it was too embarrassing because, you know, in in those days, people were very religious. And so they believed that God was on your side if you were good and then you won. And so if to lose so catastrophically um, to people who were not of your religion um, was something that people just didn't choose to deal with. They just didn't mention it at all. Um, exactly. It was, it was a horrific defeat, and, uh, which is pretty much uh, to the point uh, uh, de- described in the novel. And the... The Russians call it the Mongol yoke. The reality is that the different principalities that ruled Russia, Kiev being the most powerful at the time, Kiev and Rus, they were under the Mongol rule, they became one country. In China also, these three warring dynasties ended up, uh, actually the Chinese appreciated and called uh, Kublai the first uh, emperor of a united China. They appreciate the fact that those wars, in, inter-regional uh, you know, wars, ended and a united, powerful China was formed. Uh, same thing happened in Russia, but the Russians didn't like the idea. Actually, the name Shora, I had a Russian nanny when I was growing up. This is, uh, I haven't lived in the country of my birth for several decades now, so I've lost contact uh, in so many ways. But... When I was growing up, actually attending uh, uh, Christian and Jewish schools uh, in Iran at the time, my nanny was Russian, and her name was Shora, and she said that in Russia, Alexandria is called Shora. So that's <laughs> that's her story, actually, um, relating in the novel. 
Yes, yes. Alexandra is one of the names that sure is a nickname for. That's right. So tell us about the Christina that you created. What is her personality like? She seems rather sunny compared to the, uh, the other two. According to historical accounts, Hulubu did have a Christian wife with a very difficult to pronounce name. And uh, according to the material I read in some Persian resources, she was the one who encouraged Hulugu to spare the Christians during his attack on Bakhtar. So that tale about Christina's move uh, is really not far from Why does she eventually complete the manuscript that Chaka and Rehan have have, uh, started? My guess is that, again, uh, princesses in Europe were probably among the few who were well-educated. And as well-educated women, uh, once she learns, considering that she doesn't have any outlet, she doesn't have anything that attaches her to the land where she's taken, she would have a likelihood to resort to writing as, a, as an outlet. So uh, especially the fact that it's a hidden manuscript that these women share, it's probably intriguing for them to participate in the, in the adventure. And what if Hulagu? Uh, you've mentioned that he, he is, we're at a new generation now. So we started with Jangos and then we do his son, Agadai, and now we're with his grandson. Um, and he it was, as you noted, the founder of the Ilkhanate, uh, which encompassed much of the Middle East and Western Central Asia. Um, what is his history and what kind of man has he become as a result of it? The uh, Mongol era was, an, uh, you know, during the time of Genghis Khan, it was just carnage and destruction. And so there were no institutions of governance or uh, administration left. Therefore, chaos would ensue uh, after the war. I mean, people would have nowhere to to run to. Um, During uh, Genghis's children, grandchildren, uh, we see that transformation happening. And uh, that was one of the reasons why I chose the princesses, because one of the things that baffles historians is that the transformation that these different Mongol rulers underwent from one generation to the next. And I believe that these highly educated women brought to the court probably either uh, raised these children or became like governesses to them and were teaching them things because by the time Hulegu uh, comes to power, although, you know, the, the, the carnage and fighting continues, but at least he takes responsibility for the inhabitants. He starts ruling and administrating the lands that he has conquered. So there's some kind of a livelihood that continues and the situation changes. He even promotes uh, scientific interactions. The first observatory, probably the largest observatory of its kind in the world was built during Holego's time by him in which Tusi participated. We read that in the novel. And... uh, he brought scientists from all over the world to cooperate there. Actually, this is the big thing about the Mongol era, that these walls came down and interactions in all fields, culturally and religiously, these were isolated kingdoms. And it changed into uh, what uh, Jack Weatherford calls uh, setting the stage for the formation of the modern world because uh, communication changed things. I was struck by the fact that all three of your heroines share a kind of what you might call survivor guilt now, um, as if they were personally responsible for the Mongols' wartime atrocities and they had to do something to stop it. Um, 
Is that how you see it? And if it is, why is that? Uh, that's a very important point that you bring up. Um, the the uh, women who are taken by the Mongols, uh, they do not have the you know ability to defy their captors. Uh, so they are in a position where they, at least in appearance, they are cooperating with the Mongols. And they're agreeing with everything that the Mongols are doing. So definitely there will be a sense of guilt on their part about being hand in glove uh, with their uh, with their enemies. This must have been a huge project to research, uh, especially with all the details that are needed to write successful historical fiction. Um, the range of languages and cultures is enormous. So you said it took you eight years, but how did you even get started? Uh, and even more, how did you decide what to keep in and what to leave out? Um, the 13th century, yeah, even by the standards of the 13th century, uh, the carnage was absolutely uh, brutal. And I didn't want to write a book of horrors. Uh, I wanted a book that not only get a, get a, gave a feel for the Mongol era, but at the same time, it would read like 1001 Nights. Uh, so, uh, full story to the rescue, I had to reread War and Peace and leave the carnage in the background and uh, bring out the personalities, interrelations, uh, and to the foreground. Uh, you know, this was not easy. As I said, I went, uh, and I really owe it to uh, my professors at Johns Hopkins and, and to years of reading the works of the great women and men of uh, literature uh, to give me, uh, you know, give me the support I needed to go through this. Um, and many times I thought that this work will never finish and I'll never be able to accomplish it. But I'm very thankful to the help I received. Uh, also, we had a wonderful uh, writing group that I was uh, uh, with during the last two years of this project. And they were great help. Uh, so eventually uh, this came together in, in a really unexpected way. Uh, also, my editor, I've mentioned her, Dr. Nicole Miller, and she's uh, Oxford educated, and uh, she uh, had her knowledge of uh, classic English literature allowed me to remove modern references in the book. So keep the tone like 15th century uh, style writing. Uh, and one thing she mentioned, which was very important, and uh, my JHU professor said, Mr. No, uh, was the fact that um, I had used the word globe. And 13th century, at least as far as Europe was concerned, the world was flat. And uh, Galileo had not, did not exist at the time. So uh, these changes were made. And uh, I'm also thankful to my publisher, who uh, helped me through the last stage of editing the work and adding uh, areas where there were deficiencies were filled and eventually. But I think, the, I think the most important moment in this whole process was one night when I couldn't sleep. I was extremely frustrated. And one thing that frustrated me was the discrepancies that existed in the different accounts, you know, like even very, I was very happy to see that you have mentioned in your novel that uh, Inghis Khan was buried in and near the place where he was born in, you know, in, uh, in Mongolia. 
in according to one account, it, initially I wrote that he uh, died and was buried in the Tangut region, where he was, you know, he received, uh, 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 you know, he was killed there. But then when you think of it and you look at the situation from the characters that existed at the time, he was so highly revered that his followers would not leave his body there. Whatever it took, they would carry him back to Mongolia. So I had to change that whole segment and rewrite it for it to make sense. And when I did that, when I began to see the world through the eyes of each one of these characters, every part of this book came together like a pieces of a puzzle. And it was amazing because it all made sense then. And before that, it, it was extremely confusing for me. So what would you like people to take away from the sky worshippers? Uh, one of the amazing things that uh, Genghis Khan did initially when he entered Bukhara, he went inside a mosque and with his horse and sort of desecrated the mosque. But soon he realized that religion can be used as a tool. Now he was looking at it out of a conviction for you know a commitment to religious freedom. He was looking at it primarily from a strategic military point of view and he was you know you could call him a genius militarily for what he does for, for you know the lands that you know the largest contiguous piece of land in the world was conquered by the mongols nobody could achieve that level of uh, you know uh, conquering uh, he uh, realized soon that the best thing to do was to leave religion alone because people who would not fight for bread or uh, honor they would fight to death for religion so in Karakoram, the Mongol capital, you had mosques and churches and uh, Buddhist temples and Jewish synagogues next to each other, people freely worshipping. But then he used those clergy as his mouthpieces, and they would propagate his Yasa laws. Now, those Yasa laws are really interesting laws. They include provisions that are, um, they sound like monotheistic uh, you know, view, apparently the clergy of the time were influencing Genghis Khan into, for example, uh, abolishing adultery. When in the Mongol, uh, you know, region at the time in the 13th century, within a girl, which was one of these tent structures they had, uh, women were shared. So the idea of adultery, as we understand it, was unfamiliar to them. But he includes it as being outlawed. But he also included provisions that didn't make any sense at all to anybody. Like you cannot wash your garment in the river in the middle of a thunderstorm. And people had to abide by it. You know, from Vietnam all the way to the gates of Vienna, people were, uh, there were these tablets and uh, sites where it warned people that you have to abide by these laws, whether you understand it or like it or not. And it's an amazing, <laughs> amazing time. Period. So this novel has just come out. Are you working on another one? Yes, actually, it took me so long to get a feel for the 13th century. Let me just give you an example. In Turkey, currently, Turkey is the greatest producer of rose petals. So initially, I wrote that in Anatolia, which is today's Turkey, um, roses grew. But then I learned that no, it didn't, not in the 13th century. Persia was a producer of roses, but not Turkey. To find the word aconite, <laughs> you cannot Google flowers that grow in Turkey in the 13th century. You have to go uh, through plenty, um, you know, like books of botany, and if you're lucky, you find the right word. 
that's how difficult the research was. Um, that's why I'm staying in the 13th century, but this time I'm tackling the Italy and to specific uh, uh, Sicily, which at the time was an independent country. So the focus of my next novel, I've written some of it, uh, but again, it's going to be a long process. Uh, we'll be Okay, well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. I've really enjoyed talking with you. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with F.M. Dimiad about the Sky Worshippers. Find out more about her at www.candleandquill.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.